If you haven't turned yet to Galatians, turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to pick up with the very last verse and then get into chapter 6. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 26 in a moment. Let's pray one more time before we begin. Father, thank you so much for your love, your faithfulness. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his life and death and resurrection and his future return and all that that means to us. I pray today, Father, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would direct our hearts once again to Jesus, that we would be humbled and we would put to death sin in our lives and we would walk by the Spirit and be led by the Spirit and live by the Spirit and do good to everyone in our lives, especially those the household of faith, the church. So help us today, God. Get great glory as your word goes forth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Some explaining is in order, or as one of my friends likes to say, you got some splaining to do. So please let me explain a few things about today's sermon, especially about the title Yes, we are still in the book of Galatians, even though this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and even though our series is called Joy Killers, we're still in the book of Galatians. Now, this passage doesn't directly relate to the sanctity of human life, but it is actually very relevant to the issue of the sanctity of human life. So we'll look at Galatians today, this section of Scripture. We'll unpack it and see what it meant for the Galatian churches in their time. But we'll also see how it applies to us, in particular, the issues surrounding the sanctity of human life. Now, about that sermon title. Do I really hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday? Yes, I do. I really hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. You probably want to know why. Let me explain. Better yet, let me allow Dr. Russell Moore to explain since I stole the sermon title from the title of one of his blog posts. He says this, I don't hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I think it somehow unbiblical. No. Indeed, the entire canon of Scripture throbs with God's commitment to the fatherless and to the widows, his wrath at the shedding of innocent blood. I don't hate it because I think it's inappropriate. Just as every Lord's Day should be Easter with the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus and Christmas with the announcement of the Incarnation, so every Lord's Day should highlight the worth and dignity of human life. I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that we have to say things to one another that human beings shouldn't have to say. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon their babies. No human life is worthless, regardless of skin color, age, disability, economic status. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. 
This morning, as I opened the Bible to preach, Russell Moore says, I looked out and caught the eye of my sons. I prayed that their children wouldn't have to hear a sermon against abortion and euthanasia. I prayed that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren would grow up in an age when abortion is, as the Feminist for Life organization put it some years ago, not just illegal, but unthinkable. I prayed for my yet-to-be-conceived, but not-yet-to-be-conceived-of great-grandchildren that a sanctity of human life Sunday would seem as unnecessary to them as a reality of gravity emphasis Sunday. I hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that as I'm preaching, there are babies warmly nestled in wombs who won't be there tomorrow. I'm reminded that there are children, maybe even blocks from my pulpit, who will be slapped, punched, and burned with cigarettes before nightfall. I'm reminded that there are elderly men and women languishing away in loneliness, their lives pronounced to be a waste. But I also love Sanctity of Human Life Sunday when I think about the fact that I serve a congregation with ex-orphans all around adopted into loving families. I love to reflect on the men and women who serve every week in pregnancy centers for women in crisis And I love to see men and women who have aborted babies find their sins forgiven, even this sin, and their consciences cleansed by Christ. And we have many of all of those in this church. Orphans adopted, people working at CareNet here in Santa Maria, and people who've had abortions who've found forgiveness in Christ. Dr. Russell Moore continues, We'll always need Christmas. We'll always need Easter, but I hope, please, Lord, someday soon that sanctity of human life day is unnecessary. So, Grace, that's why I hate sanctity of human life Sunday. I agree 100% with Russell Moore. We shouldn't have it, but we do, and we will have it until the day comes that we don't have to have it. And we'll pray and work hard to see that day come or until Jesus returns. So what do we do today in order to see that the day comes when we won't have to preach sermons against abortion or human trafficking or the abuse of children or against euthanasia? This passage in Galatians is very helpful to help us see what we can do today to make sure the day comes that we don't have to have. A sanctity of human life Sunday. Here's our big idea today, and then we'll jump into the text. It's simply this. Humble yourself and help your neighbor. That's the big idea in this section of Galatians. And it's a very natural segue because of what we looked at last week. Last week we saw that there is this war in every single believer of Jesus Christ. This war between the flesh and the spirit. This war for you to either live for Jesus and his glory or for you to live for yourself. There's this war within every believer to live for you or to live to serve and help others. So Paul continues this theme as he begins to wrap up his letter. So look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, and hear the word of the Lord. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So how does the gospel help us as we live together in community with one another? How does the gospel come in like a wrecking ball and smash our selfishness so that we can love and help our neighbor? How does the gospel smash how we view other people? What the gospel does is that it begins to turn our eyes to Jesus. The Holy Spirit, as we saw last week, is always pointing us to Jesus. And when we see Jesus, then we realize in the community that we live in, it is a level playing field. The gospel shows us that only Jesus is holy and good and worthy. And the gospel shows us that every single person we live in community with is a sinner just like us. So the gospel, when rightly rehearsed, should humble us. The gospel, when we preach it to ourselves, should cause us to quit comparing ourselves to other people by either thinking we're better than them Or by thinking, they're better than me. And that's why Paul tells the Galatians here in verse 26 to not become conceited. The Greek word here for conceited means you're vainglorious. You're empty of glory. It means that there is this absence of honor and glory and recognition. It's a deep insecurity that makes someone feel compelled to prove their worth to other people. And it shows its ugly head when we want to validate ourselves and prove ourselves to the people that we live in community with. And we all do it. When we are conceited in this way, when we are empty of honor, empty of glory, empty of the recognition that we think we deserve, the honor that we think we deserve, what we end up doing is spending all of our energies trying to prove ourselves and prove our worth to other people. We don't feel recognized We don't feel we receive the honor, the recognition that we deserve. So what do we do? It causes us to spend our energies trying to prove our value and our worth to the people that we live with or work with or in church with. So when Paul tells the Galatians to stop or to not become conceited, he's telling them basically, quit comparing yourselves to one another. And that pride, that conceit, will always manifest itself in one of two ways, as Paul says here, either through provoking one another or through envying one another. When we are insecure and we're not rooted firmly in the gospel, when we don't have our eyes fixed on Jesus, our Redeemer, when the gospel does not humble us, then we will inevitably become conceited and focus on ourselves. And that conceit will manifest itself through either provoking or envying. 
Now let me show you how conceit or how when we feel empty of the honor and recognition that we think we deserve, let me show you how it expresses itself in one of those two ways. First, Paul says, if you become conceited, you'll provoke other people. The Greek word means uh, to call someone to a contest, to, to basically call them out. And when we do this, we're basically assuming a higher position than the person that we're dealing with. We're sending the message that we have it all together. We're spiritual. I love Jesus more than other people. I do the right things. I believe the right things. All other Christians are carnal. They stink and they don't love Jesus as much as I do. That's what provoking looks like in your life when you get your eyes off of Jesus and become conceited, as Paul says here. You begin to look down on other people. You look down on others because you feel empty of some honor or recognition that you think you deserve. So you begin to look down on others and you elevate yourself so that you get the honor that you're missing. See, when you're missing out on that honor or recognition that you think you deserve, what you will inevitably do, inevitably do is look down upon people, push them down and say, you stink, you're no good, I'm great, now I'm up here and I'm getting the honor and the recognition and the glory that I deserve by putting people down. The other way it manifests itself, conceit in our life, is through envying. When we assume the lower position and we put people on a pedestal and we envy them. We think they have it all together. They are so spiritual and I'm a worm. I'm a nobody. I'm no good. Those people are great parents. They really love Jesus. I don't. They read their Bible all the time and I barely do. They never lose it with their kids, but I do all the time. That's what envying looks like. When you get your eyes off of Jesus and become conceited, you look down on yourself and you try to feel the honor that you are missing by bringing yourself down and highlighting their worth and value. Both of these, envying and provoking, are a form of the conceit that Paul is talking about here. By looking down on others and by looking down on yourself, you're showing that it's a form of conceit manifesting in your eyes. You are basically getting your eyes off of Jesus and looking at yourself by either elevating yourself or morbidly getting introspective and looking down on yourself. It's all a form of conceit and pride because where are you looking inwardly at yourself? Tim Keller says this, practically speaking, You have to use the gospel by preaching it to yourself right in the midst of situations where you are trying to act in newness of life. If, for example, you find yourself being very defensive around someone, you must use the gospel at that very moment saying to yourself, what you think of me is not the important thing. Jesus Christ's approval of me, not yours, is my righteousness, my identity, my worth. If, on the other hand, you find yourself looking down on someone, you need to remind yourself of the gospel. What I think of me is not the important thing. I am just as much a sinner and just as undeserving of Christ's love for me as this person. And we all do this, don't we? 
You know you all try to defend yourself and, and create that value, find that value and recognition of, or worth that you feel empty of so you get defensive with people and try to explain, here's why I didn't show up at the prayer meeting. Here's why I'm not serving at a one. Here's why I'm not doing this. Here's why I do this. Because we are missing out on that recognition and worth that we think that we have, that we get from Jesus when we look at him. And in that moment, when you're defensive, you need to tell yourself, preach the gospel to yourself, what these people think of me doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks about me. So you don't have to be defensive. Listen, this is what Galatians is about. It's about walking in freedom and living life that you don't care what people think about you. It will set you free. And if you're prideful and you think too much of yourself, you need to preach the gospel to yourself and say, what I think of me is not the most important thing. You know, even though I think I'm so good and so great, and boy, everybody, if I discipled people, then man, the world would be transformed because I would make many me. If you think that way, you need to preach the gospel to yourself and say, you need Jesus just as much as the people that you look down on. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul wants the Galatians to turn their eyes once again to Jesus. He wants them to find their worth in Jesus and not become conceited. He wants them to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to walk by the Spirit. Paul is basically updating his Facebook status and saying this, Humble yourself and help your neighbor. And he will show them what this looks like in chapter 6. So let's look at chapter 6 of Galatians verses 1 through 5. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Paul's telling the Galatians here that when a fellow believer is caught in some transgression, some sin, when they're in this pattern of sin in their life, that sometimes they need help getting released from the clutches of sin. Now, Paul, I think, is probably talking about those believers in Galatia who had bought the lies of the false teachers that said that were preaching this gospel of works righteousness, that what you do gets you right with God and keeps you right with God. So I think contextually, Paul is directing this to those believers who have been caught in the transgression of this false gospel, believing they had to come back under the Mosaic law and be circumcised in order to be made right with God. I think that that's who Paul is specifically talking about here when it comes to restoring someone who has fallen into some sort of sin. He's outlining what restoration looks like when someone falls to the lies of a works-based gospel. How do you restore that person? How do you restore any person who has fallen prey to a false gospel? Or how do you restore any person in your life, any Christian who has shipwrecked their life? How do you restore a person who has had an abortion or their girlfriend or their spouse had an abortion? How do you restore someone who has abused their kids? 
How do you restore someone who needs restoration because they've made bad choices and given in to the desires of the flesh and now they're kind of stuck in this quicksand of sin and consequences? Paul says that those who are spiritual should restore these individuals gently. Now, Paul is not talking about only those who are spiritually mature, that they are the only ones who can restore and help someone. He's not saying it's only the spiritually mature who are involved in restoration. Now, of course, if there is a situation where restoration and help is needed, do you want someone who's spiritually mature to be there, like a pastor or an elder? Absolutely. You want a solid Christian to be there. But restoration is not limited to the spiritually mature because discipleship is not limited to the spiritually mature. When Paul says that the spiritual should restore someone and restore them gently, he's harking back to chapter 5 where he was talking about the fruit of the Spirit. The spiritual are those who walk by the Spirit and are being led by the Spirit and live by the Spirit. Paul is calling these very normal Christians in the churches of Galatia to do restoration. He's not calling on the superhero Christians to do this. If the Galatians are following the desires of the Spirit and dying to sin and self, then he says, you will be able to. To restore people gently. If you are humbling yourself. He's saying then you can help your neighbor. And you can help them by restoring them gently. The word restore in Greek is katartizo. It was used in Paul's day of putting a bone back in place. A broken bone. Resetting a bone. So if you uh, broke or dislocated your bone in Paul's day, this is the word that would be on the form that the doctor sent to your insurance company. It would say services performed, katartizo of right shoulder or whatever. Restoration. Understand this about restoration grace. Sometimes restoring a person, like resetting a bone, is painful. It's needed for them to be healthy, but it can often be painful. So we need much wisdom here. When gently restoring an individual, we need the fruit of the Spirit. We need love and joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's not by accident that Paul follows his discussion of the fruit of the Spirit by talking about restoration in relationships. So when you are involved in restoring and helping your neighbor in an area of restoration, and you don't even know where to start or what to say or what to pray then ask God to let the fruit of the Spirit be evident and manifest in your life as you are helping them get restored. Pray in that moment, God, help me to love this person. God, help them to to realize there is a joy that they can have, that they're forgiven. God, help them to experience your peace. God, help me to do this in gentleness. Help me to have self-control and not be harsh with them. So when you're dealing with restoration, a great thing to pray is to just ask for the fruit of the Spirit to be manifest in the situation. Now, while restoration is painful, and we need wisdom in doing it, 
Paul gives a warning here. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. He's saying, be humble. Don't be full of pride. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying that if you are restoring and helping someone in a particular sin, then be careful because you might fall into the particular sin that you're trying to help them get out of. In other words, if you are helping with someone who's gambling, who struggles with gambling and blowing their paycheck, I don't think Paul is saying this to the Galatians. Watch out because if you're helping the guy who's struggling with gambling, then watch out because you could suddenly be turned into Kenny Rogers and become the gambler. Okay? I don't think Paul's saying that here. If you are helping someone who struggles with gambling and they have messed up their life and you're trying to help them and restore them gently, Paul is saying this, don't pridefully look down on them because you don't struggle with gambling. Don't pridefully look down on them because you may be tempted in an area where you struggle. So if you're counseling someone who struggles with pornography... Don't look down on them because you don't struggle with pornography. Why? Because you may be tempted to sin. Not necessarily with pornography, but it might be that you're tempted to worry or to gossip or to live in the fear of man. See, Paul's just echoing an Old Testament proverb here. Why don't you finish it for me? We'll make this a little interactive. I'll paraphrase Proverbs 16, 18, which I think is rolling around in Paul's mind as he's writing. Pride comes before a fall. Paul's just echoing that proverb here. Paul's just echoing what he said in Galatians 5, 26 about not becoming conceited, not becoming prideful. And I'm just echoing Paul with our big idea when I say, humble yourself and help your neighbor. Don't slip into pride when you're helping someone. Don't become conceited when you're helping someone who struggles with a sin that you don't struggle with. Don't become conceited when you help someone who struggles with homosexuality and you say, I don't struggle with this. I can't believe you struggle with that. And don't pridefully look down upon them. Don't become conceited when you're helping someone who has had an abortion. Don't become conceited when you hear that someone has abused their kids. Paul sends a warning. Keep an eye on yourself or you may fall to a sin that you constantly struggle with. You see, the reality is this. It's just so easy to look down on people, isn't it? It's just so easy. I did it several times this week. No, no, I'm going to preach on this passage. Oh, God, I did it again. I looked down on them in pride thinking I have it together. I have a feeling that the many times that I've caved and given into the indwelling sin that I struggle with, there was probably a direct correlation in my life of how I viewed other people and looked down upon them and lifted myself up in pride, and then I fell. So I don't know about you, but I need another reminder of our big idea. Humble yourself and help your neighbor. Now, let's relate it to the issue of the sanctity of human life. How do Christians typically respond to abortion, especially when it spills over into politics? How do Christians typically respond to those who support abortion or maybe even had an abortion? Many Christians do it as conceited and prideful people. They think to themselves, I'm on the right side politically. Many Christians give the impression 
especially when they talk politics, that they have it all together. Listen, we may be pro-life, but are we pro-love as we are pro-life? Do we humble ourselves to really help someone, to help them understand our position and maybe help them come, come to the conclusion that we have about a particular topic or are we just there to defend our position? Do we do it with arrogance? Are we really trying to help someone or are we just trying to win an argument? Humble yourself and help your neighbor. And this is what Paul tells the Galatians in verses 3 through 5. Look at verse 3. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Paul is just saying the same thing that he's been saying the last few verses. Help your brother out. Help your neighbor out when they struggle. And Paul says, when you do this, you fulfill the law. And that's what he said in Galatians 5.14. The whole law is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we shouldn't become conceited and prideful and think that we are something because the reality is that every single one of us is nothing. It's a level playing field at the cross, Grace. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. We're all seriously messed up here. You're in good company, even though it's bad company. We all have issues. We all have major issues. None of us are good. We're all seriously messed up. You do know that, don't you? Quit trying to hide it. When I see you, I say, that's a messed up person. I don't see you as some saint or good person. I think, man, they're just as messed up as I am. They're just hiding it, and they don't have any freedom. Listen, if you have the audacity to stand next to Jesus and think you're something and think you've got it going on spiritually, then watch out, because I think I hear a Garth Brooks song. Thunder rolls and the lightning strikes. Watch out for that lightning bolt if you have the audacity to stand next to Jesus and say, I'm in, I'm in good company here, me and you, all those other sinners. If you think you are some great Christian and everybody else needs to get their act together and they need to start loving Jesus like you because you are so good, then you know what? Maybe a lightning bolt will strike you. I don't know, but at the very least, you need to hear verse 3 again. For if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. Whenever Christians think they got it going on spiritually and everybody else needs to step it up, then Paul says what you're doing is boasting in others. You're boasting in your neighbor. You're boasting in your neighbor's weakness. You're boasting in their sin and in their failure. This is what Paul means. He's basically saying, mind your own business spiritually. Quit puffing yourself up by focusing on the failures of others. Bear your own load, he's saying. Meaning this, focus on your own sin, your own junk, your own mess. Quit becoming conceited by pointing out the failures of others. You got your own crud to deal with. Your heart stinks 
just like everybody else's. Don't lift your heart in pride by looking down on your neighbor. Instead, Paul is saying, humble yourself and help your neighbor. Which is exactly what Paul says to the person who has been helped by his neighbor. This is exactly what Paul says to the person who has been gently restored by their neighbor. They too, in turn, should humble themselves and help their neighbor. Look at verse 6. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I used to think that this verse, along with many preachers and many commentators, that this verse was talking about how we are called to financially take care of our pastors and teachers and ministers in the church. I used to think that this verse was talking about paying a salary to those who work full-time in ministry, such as pastors, worship, worship leaders, etc. But this verse is not talking about that at all. There, there is a verse, there's plenty of verses in the Bible that talk about helping out and providing for ministers financially so they can do the work of the ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18 is one of those. The Old Testament is full of passages on taking care of the priests so that they can do the work of the ministry. But this verse in Galatians does not have that in mind. I don't think Paul switches gears here suddenly and starts talking about paying for your pastor's salary Thank you, by the way, for doing that. Paul's talking about discipleship here. He's talking about making disciple-making disciples. And that's our tagline around here. Now, let me explain. The phrase here, the one who is taught, is the Greek word katechumenos. We get our word catechized from this. Maybe, maybe you're enjoying in our, our daily emails that we send out uh, the vine. Maybe you're enjoying the new city catechism that we've been looking at. If you're not, sign up, uh, send an email to the church and say, I want to be a part of the daily devotional. We just started the new city catechism. That We get that word catechism from this Greek word. It means one who is taught. You catechize someone. You teach them. Specifically, you teach them God's Word. And if you're not catechizing your children, I encourage you to do that. There are many great resources out there. Ours starts with, you know, uh, who made you? God. Why did, what else did God make? God made all things. Why uh, did God make all things for his glory? We were at the zoo in Santa Barbara yesterday, and we were looking at the elephants, and I asked Piper, our almost two-year-old, uh, who made the elephants? God. Why did God make all things? She doesn't know the answer just yet. And and she just kind of looked at me and I said, uh, for his glory. And she said, oh, for his glowy. So catechize means one who is taught. You teach someone. So Paul is saying when someone is discipled, when they've been taught God's word, maybe they were restored gently as he's already talked about, then that person needs to give back. In fact, the word share, he says, they need to share with those who have taught them. The word, the share, is the Greek word koinonia, which I think right after you become a Christian, you have to learn that Greek word. I think that's how it works, right? So you fill in the blank. We'll make it a little more interactive. Tell me, what does the word koinonia mean? Fellowship. Oh, man, we need to do some more discipling then. After you become a Christian, we've got to teach you what the Greek word koinonia means. It means fellowship. Many of you know that. You were just shy. It means to partner to share in something. So Paul is just telling the Galatians that if they've been taught the word of God, 
then they too should share or partner in the gospel with the person who taught them. They should be busy making disciple-making disciples by sharing all good things of the gospel with the person who discipled them and then with others that they discipled. But listen, if you're on the receiving end of being restored gently or some mature Christian is teaching you, do you naturally feel like I could share something back with them and, and teach them something? No, because you, you've lifted them up on a pedestal, haven't you? He's already talked about that in verse 26. So if you've been taught the good things of the gospel, you have to humble yourself. Even if you're just a two-month-old Christian, you have to humble yourself because God may be asking you to challenge the brother who's discipling you, to encourage them. But it takes humility. Because many of us feel inadequate. So the pastor encourages us. He pours into us. And we think I could never share anything with him. And Paul is saying humble yourself. And share with those who have taught you. But Paul knows that it's easy to lose focus. And quit making disciples. Paul knows that it's difficult to walk in the spirit. Difficult to live in community with other people. Difficult to love others. Difficult to be gentle with others. So Paul wants to remind the Galatians to not give up. He knows that the temptation to quit loving people and quit doing ministry is great. Let me say that again. Paul knows that the temptation to quit loving people... And you've all been tempted that way. And the temptation to quit doing ministry and serving in ministry, he knows that temptation is very great. So he encourages the Galatians to keep pressing on in ministry and to not give up because he says it's not in vain. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul is just reminding the Galatians that they don't labor in vain. He wants them to understand the basic principle of sowing and reaping, which they were familiar with. He wants them to understand that God will not be mocked. That if we sow to the flesh, if we sow to selfishness, we're going to reap corruption in our life. If we live self-centered lives, then Paul says you're just going to reap corruption But those who sow to the Spirit, those who die to self, those who die to sin, and those who put others first, then Paul says, you will reap eternal life. I think basically Paul is saying this in verses 7 through 10. Look, I get it. It's hard to die to self. It's hard to live in a world where everybody lives for self. It's hard to live in a world where it seems like the world has everything and gets, gets away with everything and you see no fruit in your life. I get it. Don't quit. Don't stop serving others. Don't quit doing good. Even when it seems like it doesn't make a difference. Keep at it. You're making a difference. God will not be mocked. You're sowing and you will reap one day. Don't give up. Keep doing good to everyone, even unbelievers, but especially do good to the church. 
That's what he's saying here. And you have to humble yourself to do this. You have to humble yourself to love your spouse and your children and serve them. You have to humble yourself to give up your time and serve the youth group on Tuesday nights or Awana at Wednesday night. You have to humble yourself to do that. You have to humble yourself under the promise in this passage that you will reap if you faint not. So, are we making a difference in discipleship here? Yes, even when we see no fruit. Are we making a difference by standing up for the sanctity of human life? Yes, even when we see no fruit. Are we making a difference in seeing abortion come to an end? Yes, even though we see no fruit. Are we making a difference in seeing human trafficking come to an end? Absolutely, even though we see no fruit. Are we making a difference as we stand up for truth in a dark world? Yes, even though we may not see any fruit. Are we making a difference in spreading the gospel? Yes, even when we see no fruit. Are we making a difference in our parenting even when it seems like our kids aren't responding? Yes, even when we see no fruit. I gotta be honest, sometimes I'm tempted to give up because you do work, work, do things. It's like, I see no fruit. Is it even worth going on? For instance, let me give you... uh, Insight into my morning, 99.9% of the time I begin every morning by turning off my alarm clock on my iPhone and I go straight to my email because I know Joshua Project is going to send me an unreached people group to pray for. So that's the very first thing I do in the morning. Go right there into my email, Joshua Project sends me that and I pray for an unreached people group first thing in the morning and I pray that abortion would end. Every single morning. Now, i got to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm like, is this even making a difference? As I prayed for the Kawa of China this morning, I thought, you know, gosh, is it even making a difference? How do I even know? So I'm tempted to just give up sometimes on doing those things that we're always doing. And Paul is saying, don't give up. So if you're like me and you're tempted to, to stop doing good to people, then maybe you need to hear verse 9 again like me. Because I think verse 9 will give us the motivation to keep working and to keep praying and to keep signing petitions and to keep writing elected officials and to keep voting and to keep supporting ministries like CareNet, supporting them financially, so that one day we won't even have to have a sanctity of human life Sunday. Don't you want that? Don't you want our great-grandchildren to ask of us, You had what? Sanctity of human life Sunday at church because people killed unborn babies? Because people sold other human beings into the sex market? For real? Y'all did that back then? I want future generations to look back on abortion and slavery and human trafficking and the sex market and think about it the way that we do about the Nazi concentration camps. I can't believe they did that back then. That's why we got to keep pressing on doing good. So how about verse 9? Once again, to give us some encouragement to keep making disciples, making disciples, to keep praying, to keep standing up for the sanctity of human life. Here's verse 9 again, which is exactly what we need to hear on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. May God help us.
May God help us for his glory. May God help us for our joy. And may God help us so that I can quit hating sanctity of human life Sunday. Let's pray.